From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining me. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lindsay Smith. I'm always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook or Twitter with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or soundcloud.com. The history of the American West is not an easy story to tell. Depending on who you ask, you can hear grand stories of adventure and expansion of people's capital and Americanism, or you can hear stories of subjugation, conquest, destruction, and domination. Perhaps more often than not, the story of the American West is a grand mixture of all of these themes and more. We discussed in an earlier episode the concept of New Western history, where historians are increasingly incorporating race, gender, and power relations into the history of the American West. The gunslinging, outlaw chasing, rough riding adventures told in popular culture are not entirely true, nor are they without untruths or exaggeration. In fact, the American West is a vast landscape with varying geography, environments, and people groups. Historians are continuously working to find new means of understanding the history of this region. My guest today is working on a history of the American West through a surprisingly unique medium, music. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, I interview Will Schneider. Will is a second-year graduate student in Portland State University's history program. He is working on finalizing his master's thesis, Music and Race in the American West. His focus is on the 19th century, but he recognizes that the significance of race relations in the American West is not limited to this time period. Through his research, Will hopes to contribute to the field in at least three ways by demonstrating that music is significant to historical analysis, that music can be used to better understand racial power dynamics in the 19th century American West, and to provide an impactful collection of primary sources to be referenced and used in future research. Welcome, Will. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with some more information about you. Where are you from originally, and how did you come to be a history graduate student at PSU? I never know how to answer that question, actually. (laughs) Uh, I was raised in Wisconsin, but went to high school here and then did a year at PSU my freshman year, but then I didn't like it at all. And I left and went and got a degree in audio engineering and pursued music for a while and then came back to PSU to pursue history and ended up using both in my master's thesis. Your thesis topic explores race relations in the 19th century American West as told through music. You focused on the relationships between Anglo-Americans, African-Americans, Native Americans, Mexican-Americans, and Asian immigrants. How did you come to this topic? Can you explain a little bit about how music from this era helps us to understand race relations? Yeah, so this was actually a side project that uh, became my master's thesis. Originally, I was just interested in how musical instruments traveled across the plains, kind of from an overland trail perspective. How did how do you take a piano across the overland trail? And I went to go explore some of these things for a Western seminar, but couldn't find anything in the historiography. I couldn't find anyone talking about music, and I realized this was something that was really overlooked. And so then it became my thesis, and I decided to use music not just for its own sake, but to look at power dynamics within music. And so that's kind of how I came to the topic. What kind of power dynamics did you discover when you were researching? 
You really see all sides of it. You can see it's it was a very common way that Anglo-Americans exerted their dominance over minorities. They would sing songs um, mocking different people, like blackface minstrelsy, for example. They would put on blackface and speak in, in exaggerated African-American dialects and with really uh, corrupted versions of African-Americans where they're singing about how great their slave masters are and things like that, which is really a a caricature that Anglo-Americans were constructing and through music that was being popularized and spread throughout the country. But you also see instances of resistance. You see things like the Native American ghost dance or um, abolitionist songs or uh, Negro spirituals singing about freedom and things like that. So you really see it was something that the dominant group used to subjugate minorities, but minorities also used music to empower themselves. And then you also see that music was uh, something that could bond different groups together. There's instances where people came together because they shared music in common. So you really see all sides of the power dynamics, and that's really what I wanted to explore and say that we can use music to understand these really complicated ideas about race and simplify it in a way that's understandable but not oversimplify it to the point where we're distorting it. So that's where I think music is incredibly powerful. It gives us tremendous insight into the culture of the time. Why do you think music hasn't been really explored as a historical tool, analysis tool, before? That's a great question, and one I've asked myself a lot, actually. I think there's probably a number of reasons. Historians of the senses have actually written that uh, since the invention of the printing press, things like sound and sight and things like that have been de-emphasized by historians in favor of the written word. That's the sources we, those are the sources we want. And we understand those sorts of things. Uh, Richard Cullenrath has written some great stuff on this. So I think we, we overlook music for that reason, just because it's, it's a longstanding tradition within the field. But I also think, I think historians of the West particularly have overlooked music because oftentimes when we think about Western music, we think about cowboy music. And we think specifically of cowboy music in the post-World War II era which is a nostalgic, very clean, Anglo-centric, male-dominant style of music. And I think that has been the picture that we think of when we think of music in the West, and that's not it at all. It's also Cantonese songs from Chinese immigrants criticizing American liberty because they're being persecuted in the supposed land of liberty. So it's, it's a much more complicated than I think it appears at first sight. Right. And in your paper, in your thesis, you focus on not only one group, the Mm Anglo-Americans, but you focus on Native American music, African-American music, Mexican-American music, and Asian immigrants and Asian-American music. While you were researching, did you find more sources dedicated to certain people groups? Which groups provided the greater challenge to find examples of music? The easiest group to research their music was African-Americans because the African-American community, the music they've produced over the century has been tremendously um, influential on Anglo music and the kind of dominant music we think of. Things like the blues, uh, rock and roll, hip hop, all of this comes from African-American music. So that, and there's been a tremendous amount of study on African-American culture. So there was a body of research I could tap into there. Specifically, I had to take the sources that were relevant to the West 
So I, I was, wasn't was using everything that had been used by um, some of the scholars there. I think the hardest group for me personally was uh, Chinese immigrants because those songs are in Cantonese and that is not something. I, I don't speak Cantonese. I sort of speak Spanish. <laughs> um, I'm passable in Spanish. You're passable in I can, Spanish. I can read Spanish decently. So how did you... How did you find Cantonese? Like, for example, how did you find Cantonese sources mm-hmm. and how did you translate those or were they translated for you? They were translated for me. There's a great collection, Songs from Gold Mountain by Hom, and they're a terrific collection of different Cantonese songs from the community in San Francisco's Chinatown on a variety of subjects. You really see it like music was a way these, these people, or in all people really, uh, express themselves in all ways of life. So their songs about being homesick, their songs about new opportunity, their songs about family, their songs about wealth, their songs about critiques of Anglo-Americans. So you really see it's it's all there. So with those songs, I, those I really had to rely on translators. I always tried to find translations that uh, provided you with the original side by side with the English translation. So you could kind of double check things in Spanish. I can do that at least. Mm-hmm. A rule of thumb that isn't perfect, but a helpful guide is never take a song that is in a, originally in a foreign language and then rhymes in English because mm-hmm. if it rhymes in English and it originally was supposed to rhyme in the in Spanish or something for example it uh, it's going to be it's uh, probably not the right translation. no it's not the right translation <laughs> it's not going to be accurate it's it might be it might flow a lot better and sound better to your ear but it it's not going to be a literal translation of what was said and how did you uh, distinguish songs from poems did, did you have ever run into any kind of issue like that? Um, no. I occasionally hold up a poem to uh, an Anglo-American poem and uh, hold it in contrast to other songs um, from other communities. This example keeps coming up, but Chinese immigrants uh, criticizing American liberty, and they're doing so at the exact same time as the uh, Statue of Liberty is being erected. And so there's the give me your tired, your poor. And so sometimes I would hold those up side by side. But I really tried to focus on specifically things that came through music. So only using language and analysis of lyrics when they were sung. They weren't just written down and things like that. And I also tried to focus on sounds itself and how people understood sounds from different cultures. In your thesis as well, you you have a few interludes in between your chapters focusing on instruments and one of the interludes focuses on instruments and how the instruments have traveled essentially with the pioneers across the West. Could you give us just like, it's a good story. So could you give us this little information like on the banjo and the accordion? Yeah. So what I was trying to do with the interludes, which are just short sections that follow each of the chapter, was explore musical innovations. And I would specifically want to follow those innovations from when they first occurred into the present to really show the legacy. These things don't stop at the end of the 19th century, although my narrative does. And there's just so many tremendous examples of uh, this kind of cross-racial musical exchange. So the banjo was invented by African slaves, particularly in the Caribbean is where it seems to have first originated. And some scholars have called it the first truly African instrument, continental African instrument, because it's drawing from peoples from all over Africa bringing their different styles together, particularly Western Africa, of course. So then it makes its way to the U.S., and it becomes a big instrument in blackface minstrelsy in the antebellum era, and it becomes adopted by Anglo-Americans through the use of blackface and mimicking African-Americans. 
And so in order to engage with African-American culture, they use it in a way that was mocking African-Americans. So it could bring their ideas, musical ideas, close to them, but kind of keep the that community at arm's length from Anglo-American community. It's interesting. And I'm sure this process continues into the 20th century and even today, making excuses for incorporating somebody else's culture into yours. Yeah, it's a um it's a recurring theme, particularly between the African American community and the Anglo American community. You see it again happening with ragtime at the end of the nineteenth century, where blackface minstrelsy has kind of died down and there's this new kind of music that African Americans are creating, ragtime, and Anglo-Americans are, in some cases, very turned off by this music, but also find it exhilarating because it's a new form of music they hadn't heard before. And the way to, again, keep that community at arm's length while also embracing their musical ideas was to adopt ragtime while mocking African-Americans. And so you see all sorts of uh, called coon songs. I don't know if I should say that, but that's what it was called, which really was a repeating of the same kind of method with uh, blackface minstrelsy. And you see the same thing happening in the mid 20th century with rock and roll. And you need a white person, you need an Elvis Presley to come by and whiten up the music for you because you don't want to engage with that community's music. Do you plan on expanding on this topic in the future? Yes, though I haven't actually decided how. (laughs) So this is going to be a bad answer. (laughs) I have a few ideas I'm kind of thinking through. I would like to try to publish it, but I'd have to whittle it down, obviously, to make it into a journal article. The other option would be to expand it um, and turn it into a book. But it's a, it's at a master's like master's thesis length, so it's it's not quite either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'd have to be like cut in half or doubled. One thing that would be really interesting, I think, would be to do podcasts and kind of take different segments of it and turn them into five, ten minute podcasts and do a series that way. But that's as far as that idea has gotten it's just an idea right now it's just an idea too on the one hand you're talking about music and so the first thought is well i want to hear it i want to hear the music Mm -hmm. but this music is also racially charged how would you even begin if you made a podcast series would you want to have the music performed or have you come across any kind of courtings There are recordings of certain things that I talk about, though the vast majority, no, there aren't recordings because it was from the 19th century. So there are later variations of um, these things. You have like Negro spirituals. There's plenty of recordings, but the songs as they existed in the 19th century were very communal. They belonged to a community. There were multiple variations that existed at the same time. Someone, as soon as someone came by in the 20th century and recorded a version, that would become that became the finalized version and that was what people thought of as that song so there's there's some complexities there when you try to uh, get into the 20th century which is re- one of the reasons i stopped at the end of the 19th century i was just laying a foundation for mm-hmm. music i wish there were recordings of singers like the higher sisters who were an african-american musical group of two sisters who were prodigies they sang spirituals but they also sang music from italian operas and they're they're an example of african-americans showing such musical talent that they're winning over anglo-american audiences in a case of kind of racial harmony i wish those recordings existed but they don't and so i don't know i could find some generic banjo music but i don't i don't know who would 
accomplish the same thing. That's what we'll play with the show. We'll, we'll um, play some generic banjo music. Um, Insert generic banjo <laughs> here. In preparation for the show, I debated myself if I would try and find any of these recordings. And mm-hmm. Well, it's something that I feel is definitely people should be aware of and should critically engage with. It is kind of challenging because we live in a very politically correct mm-hmm. world. So I would be interested in see uh, where you take this, whether it's in in journal form, in book form, or in um, or in podcasts or any other mm-hmm. uh, format. I believe that you've hit on something that's very very interesting. And again, I'm surprised that it's not as that music hasn't been taken as seriously by historians at least in in this manner in the in, in the manner of uh, race relations in the in the past so yeah so look forward to that yeah, thank you <laughs> um, I look forward to whatever I decided to do as well I look forward to that too <laughs> has this research had a personal effect on you at all yeah actually it's um in a number of ways I think the most common way that I realize this has affected me is it's changed the way I listen to a lot of music. I've always been interested in music history. It was actually through studying music for my own enjoyment where I actually learned some skills that came really in handy with being a historian, following people's influences and liner notes. And the like, album liner notes, following those and seeing who they're thanking and who what sound engineer was doing what and what producer worked with this other band, the same way you follow footnotes as a historian. I've always been interested in, um, in the history of music and the bands I listened to. And this has added another layer to that. This is taking it really a step further and realizing... Why do we associate certain instruments with certain groups? The accordion, for example, was introduced into um, Mexico through German immigrants in Texas. Things like that, that you don't expect, or I didn't expect, but are there. And so it's it's made the legacy of these things I listen to much longer. I can see them going further back into the past, and that's been really fascinating and rewarding for me. As current and prospective students in history look forward to writing their own theses or dissertations. I wonder if I could ask you to tell us a little bit about your own experience preparing for, researching, writing, defending your master's thesis. Mm-hmm. What were some of the most significant or surprising aspects of that process? Honestly, the most surprising aspect was how quickly I did it. I didn't expect, well, that's not totally true. I thought you were supposed to graduate in uh, two years. <laughs> and so I just never had not doing that as an option in my head. And so I really, I utilized every class that I possibly could. This, I used uh, a seminar paper and turned it into my thesis because it was a great foundation for what I wanted to do. And I could, by accomplishing um, what I did in a seminar paper, I knew I could expand it into a thesis. I used the summer. I wrote early drafts of most of this uh, in the summer between my first and second year. I'm just doing my own research and writing, and that made the school year a lot easier because I wasn't trying to come up with new content while taking other classes. I was revising, which is probably the best advice I can give someone is just use all the breaks you can while also giving yourself a break because otherwise you'll burn yourself out. So like learning (laughs) learning when you need to push and when you need to go on vacation. That's a good learning Mm -hmm. experience that I am working through myself. (laughs) Full disclosure, 
Uh, Will and I started at the same time in our graduate program, and I commend Will for staying on track with the two-year plan. I'm looking for three. So time management is definitely a big deal. Mm-hmm. I notice your your writing, it's very narrative in the sense. I don't know if that's the proper term, but it's it's How it's dare like you. it's like <laughs> I'm reading a story hmm. and um, it's being told to me versus I'm reading an academic paper, and I think that's great because not only are you providing the uh, reader with the appropriate information that needs to be in an academic paper, but it's not boring and it's fun. And um, you use terms used in music, melody and cadence and uh, dissonance, dissonance and all of that. So uh, exactly. So what, where is your, what is your writing influence? Did that change throughout this process? Yeah, it really did. The initial paper for me Um, the seminar paper, was actually very challenging to write in the beginning because I had honed kind of my analytical writing skills. I knew how to give a topic sentence and then a paragraph of evidence and another topic sentence and another paragraph of evidence, etc. But once I felt like I had that down, I wanted to write things that were much more engaging and that were fun to read. And so I really pushed myself to tell, not just to use flowery language for flowery language's sake, it's hard to say, but to be evocative in a way. If, if someone's describing what they're seeing, I wanted to use la- evocative language to show you what they're seeing. Or they're describing what they're hearing, the exact same thing. And so really let you see what the world as the people, individuals I'm talking about saw the world. And so that was actually very challenging. It made writing a lot slower and it made the revision process a lot longer. Thank you very much for thinking it's readable, though. One of the things I didn't want to do was, this is a kind of a problem I have with academia in general is people get all these wonderful ideas and then they write them they write them down in such a way that the public doesn't have access to them and essentially letting the public ignore the conversation that's going on in the academy and that's I find that frustrating along with a lot of other scholars that's not a criticism against every historian of course so I just wanted to write something that could be engaging for an average reader someone just picking this up but also had the analytical methodology of a historian so you're it had an argument and a point and a thesis and had the citations to back up what I was saying so perhaps that it would be more engaging to the general public pick up your thesis and read it and be like oh this is interesting where most theses and dissertations that I've had to read myself, I find it's hard for me to get through it mm-hmm. just because it's heavy with technical writing yeah. and it's and that's a lot to say, not just the student themselves, but to the program. So it says a lot about the program at PSU that and your advisors and your committee that they are encouraging you to write in this manner. I believe that it's sending a message that the history department here is interested in good scholarship, good writing, and being engaging. Would you say that's your experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you bring up a great point. I should definitely thank my advisor, Dr. Johnson, and everyone on my committee, really, for taking the time to make the language as well as the argument as clear as it can be. The writing that I produced, though I still see the flaws in it, is much better than I could have produced a year or two ago, and that's because the professors were taking the time to show me how to write well and clearly. 
What was the defense process like? That can be an intimidating thought to, to have to defend your, your thesis in front of a, a, a committee. W what was that process like? Yeah. Well, I just defended two weeks ago, so it's still fresh in my mind, still actually. Fresh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, about to turn in the final revisions. It, the way that my advisor explained it to me was that it's not a hostile environment, but everyone there takes the work seriously. They're trying to get the work to be as be the best that it can be. And so taking it seriously, but knowing that no one's there trying to trip you up. And so I kind of needed to hear that to kind of realize what environment I was about to enter into. And that helped me. Another thing I can say is uh, going in with some humility. If you if you get defensive when someone brings up something, it's just going to become a very tense situation. But with if you can just accept that there's going to be something you missed, there's at least four very intelligent people looking at your work they're going to find something that isn't perfect and that's fine and embrace that and say yes maybe i should add that or maybe i should tweak this part of that argument or this term wasn't clear just recognizing that they're not trying to beat you up so was your experience where you just provided copies to the yeah members yeah i provided um well my advisor had been going through the whole process with me. And then there are two other members on the committee. The second one is your uh, your minor field advisor, the person who gave you uh, your secondary field exam. And then a third member from the department. And then a fourth member from outside the history department. So I found someone from the English department who studies musicology. And so you distribute it to them a few weeks before. Uh, the minimum is two weeks before the defense date. But apparently they're always changing the deadlines for the graduate school is. So um, <laughs> don't take my word on that in the future. No. It was just this year. This is just your experience. Yes, this is my. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I distributed it to them and then they read it and went into the conference room and spent an hour, hour and a half asking questions, asking comments, asking, have I thought about this? What did you mean here? Stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so I feel very fortunate to have had the committee I had because they were all just so smart and found things that I never thought of and I don't know found tiny little uh, typos in the footnotes and things like that like the the amount of detail and care they were putting into it was I thought would be embarrassing when they when I found a mistake but I actually found it kind of invigorating to have this many people trying to make the work as good as it can be and so that kind of gave me some um, energy to get into the revisions after the defense which naturally can feel like the end and you don't want to do anything after but <laughs> My experience was a little different. Well, that's a, that's positive yeah. to hear that for current and prospective students and for people who are just curious about that process. Like you've mentioned, sometimes academia wants to be behind closed doors. It's not like a brotherhood, a fraternity, <laughs> sorority type situation. This is a process that is in place to help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Do you, you have any immediate plans for after graduation? Sleeping more. I want to sleep a lot more. <laughs> Number one, sleep more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is there uh, a secondary? <laughs> I want to play more music personally. <laughs> okay. uh, no, I ha I'm considering uh, a PhD, going for a PhD, but not next year. I feel like I would burn myself out if I went straight into it. And so... I haven't ruled that out, but I'm looking at job opportunities right now as well. And so part of me, I've been saying this as a joke, but part of me wants to get a job at, in like a flower shop or something. 
and just like have a job that I can leave at home at five and not carry it with me the way like I carry my thesis with me 24 <laughs> seven. And like I was dreaming about my thesis like every night leading up to the defense, wow. things like that. <laughs> it's just like obsessing over it. And so if I can go get a job that's menial, that oddly sounds refreshing. Pretty much you're just going to, you know, take some time, regroup. Yeah. And then and go from there. Exactly. Well, that sounds awesome. So good luck with that. Thank um, you. <laughs> do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us today? You know, everybody, going back to the question of like how I wrote this quickly, everyone writes differently and their methods for writing are, are different. What I found really helpful was I thought I was a binge writer. I thought I could like seclude myself for a weekend and come out with 10 pages and that was the most productive way to write. And what I actually learned through this process was it's a lot a lot easier to just write a little bit every day. And so over the summer, that's what I did. I just, I would write, and my goal was 600 words a day, which is about two pages, which isn't a crazy amount. It allowed me to do research. It allowed me to actually enjoy some free time during the summer. But if you do that for a week, you have 10 pages. If you do that for two weeks, you have a chapter. And so I just kept doing that just a little bit every day. Oddly enough, I had to go back and look. I looked at what I had written in certain cases, and the word the wording is just overly complicated. I'm clearly just trying to get to that 600 mm -hmm. uh, word count, but I um, and I had to edit that down before turning it over to the committee. But just doing a little bit each time, I found to be way more helpful than binge writing. So I learned that about myself in writing, and I would recommend that to or at least to try it for anyone else because we're all different writers and you have to find what works right for you but try all the different methods thank you for that thank yeah. you for coming in today for thank you for having me, me. <laughs> that's all the time we have unfortunately it's been a pleasure having you on the show as a final note i want to encourage those of you who are interested in researching writing history to consider the many different angles that the story can take it may be considered an unfortunate reality that the people of the present cannot have a complete picture of the past but i don't see it that way i see the opportunities to explore research write and rewrite histories as one of the most intriguing and exciting aspects of being a historian i thoroughly enjoyed reading will's thesis draft in preparation for this episode and i hope and I'm hopeful for the future of historical scholarship. One thing anyone can do is to reach out and support graduate students and scholars conducting new research. Whether or not you have any interest in being a scholar, you might be pleasantly surprised to find how you can contribute to theirs and future research. Thank you all for joining me today. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. If you'd like to help the show out even more, there are a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe, or rate us on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter or Facebook. Signing off, I'm Lindsay Smith. Have a great week. Thank you.